This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Academic learning has returned as a major public concern. In a previous podcast available in our archives, I discussed the adverse effect of the pandemic on student learning in North Carolina. I also talked with Tom Kane at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He and his colleagues find a no less disturbing picture of learning loss across the United States. But today we're gonna talk about charter schools. Uh, Charter schools, are they doing better than nearby district schools? Where were they as the pandemic was about to occur? Uh, What do we think may be happening more recently? Well, the best place to look for that kind of information is at the data put together by Credo. Credo, also known as the Center for Research on Educational Outcomes at Stanford's Hoover Institution, Credo compares the performance of students at charter schools relative to that of nearby district schools, Then it also gives us data on what's happening in districts. Credo has recently released a series of reports on cities with substantial charter school enrollments, and together they give us a portrait of the charter world in urban areas on the eve of the pandemic. So I'm very pleased that we have with us today Credo's director, Margaret Raymond, a senior research fellow at the Hoover Institution, her friends call her Mackie, and I will do so on our podcast today. So thank you, Mackie, for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's a pleasure to be here, Paul. Thanks for having me. Well, Mackie, you have recently released data on student performance on the eve of the pandemic. And then there's two kinds of charter schools. Maybe you can explain this. Uh, charter schools and district schools in Indianapolis. And we'll get to some other places that you've looked at as well. But let's let's talk about Indianapolis. What What did you find about the different kinds of schools that are operating in that city, which is, what is it the capital? Am I right? Is that the capital of Indiana? It is indeed. Well, so Indianapolis is a very interesting city as far as charter schooling is concerned, uh, because it was one of the early, uh, early locations where civic leaders across the community got together and said that they wanted to try something new. And you may remember that the mayor's office took the initiative to start authorizing charter schools um, in the early 2000s. And so this is a robust part of the charter world uh, in the United States. We expect then that we would see a pretty stable uh, performance in the charter sector in Indianapolis. And that indeed is what we see. Uh, Let me just say one thing about the way that we did this study, because it's slightly different than the way that we do our normal studies. Uh, In this study, we are comparing schools in Indianapolis to what the state average is across the entire state so that every single school in Indianapolis can get evaluated. We've created a perfect balanced profile of the average of all of the schools in the state, and then each school in Indianapolis is compared to that. Across the entire community in Indianapolis, we find that uh, in both reading and math, the overall performance across all students lags the state performance as measured in academic growth. How much did a student learn in a year's time? In Indianapolis, it's about 25 days less learning in reading and about 30 days less learning per year in math. 
Well, now I know what people are going to say when they hear those kinds of numbers. They're going to say, well, yes, but Indianapolis has poor kids. Indianapolis has minority students. We know they don't perform as well. So how can this be a fair comparison? It's a great question, Paul. We are not looking at overall achievement, which is the level of how much students know. We are looking at how much students learn in a year's time. And we would expect, regardless of where you start, that schools would be able to produce a year's learning in a year's time. When we find that that's not the case, then we're seeing con communities where the overall community is contributing to the development of achievement gaps where we see that they're doing better than the state as a whole in terms of how much learning they produce in a year, we're seeing the community as a whole closing the gaps. Of course, in Indianapolis, there are very different kinds of schools, as you mentioned earlier. And we find that when we actually go beneath the entire community level, if we disaggregate by charter schools or by district schools, we see a very different picture of performance. Now, is this true for uh, subgroups of the population, different groups within the population? Is this true for white students? If you compare white students in Indianapolis with white students across the state, are they doing less well in Indianapolis? It depends entirely on which sector those students uh, are, are being schooled in. So let me give you a little bit of a background I mentioned that overall Indianapolis students are lagging by about 25 days per year in reading in terms of their learning, but that's a very different picture when you divide that between uh, charter schools and district schools. Overall, uh, the, the charter school students on average are at the state average. They are learning as much as the, as the students uh, across the state as a whole, but in the district schools, they're lagging by 45 days per year of learning. So it's, it's, not, it's not a simple picture of all students are lagging. We have really positive pictures for charter school students in general, and we have better pictures of learning in charter schools for students who are black, for students who are uh, Hispanic, and particularly for students who are in poverty. Those student groups are actually holding at the same level of learning as the state as a whole. And that's a pretty big finding for an urban situation. We do not see that when we look across the country as a whole. So what you're saying is that if the student is attending one of the, you know, there's two types of charter schools. There's one that's just called charter schools and one that's called innovation schools. So when you give me these results, are you combining those two together or do you look at them separately? We, we look at them separately, Paul, um, and we make a distinction between charter schools, which are completely independent schools that are uh, publicly funded, uh, but operate outside of a district level of control. Innovation schools are given flexibility uh, to operate more flexibly, but they are not independent of district schools. So the innovation effects in Indianapolis are not as positive um, as, as we see in the charter sector. They are, uh, they are less positive by a little bit, and they uh, continue to um, 
uh, lag the performance of, of charter schools. If you were to rank the schools, you'd say the charter schools are showing the best level of performance consistently uh, again, mm -hmm. again in 2019. Uh, and also, you're, uh, but you're seeing innovation coming in sort of second in the district schools doing uh, the least well. That is exactly what we found. And again, um, that's not a pattern that holds all the way across the country. This is a, a very specific situation in, in Indianapolis. Um, and it, it does show that, uh, that there are these opportunities that charter schools and to a lesser extent innovation schools take advantage of to be able to organize their resources to meet the needs of students in a way that district schools perhaps are not permitted to do. Well, so this is uh, fascinating and uh, it does give us uh, hope that uh, that uh, kids can learn and that uh, uh, children from disadvantaged backgrounds can learn and we don't have to just accept the status quo. But, um, but, but this, is, this is in Indianapolis and, and you said Indianapolis is not the, necessarily the story across the country. So what is it about Indianapolis charter schools that you think um, is the key, the secret sauce, so to speak? I know you don't have data on this, but, I, but maybe you have some ideas because you've been studying this for such a long time. Well, I, I do have some ideas, and I also have to just say that uh, even this morning in the 74 million, the, the online news outlet about education in the U.S., there's an article about what happens in Indianapolis and in the charter school sector there that uh, I think is actually spot on. So I would refer your listeners to, to go see that as well. I think it has to do with three different things. Um, I think in Indiana, they've worked very hard to place a high bar at the, at the threshold of allowing a charter school to open in the first place. That wasn't always the case, uh, but they've done a lot to improve the authorizer environment, and they have an authorizer mentality that has moved over into the innovation school space. Um, they've also been unapologetic about closing bad schools. And so this is part of the charter compact. And I think the authorizing in Indiana has really kept the faith of their part of the bargain, which is that they will in fact take action if, if schools are not performing well. The third thing I would say um, is that the flexibility that charter schools enjoy creates an environment where there's all kinds of incentives to continuously tinker with the school model and try to improve. And the charter contract that requires them to prove in every five years in order to be renewed puts that kind of pressure on schools to really take continuous improvement very seriously. And so if you look at the behavior of schools over time, um, you do see that they, they really do pressure themselves to get better. And during the pandemic, we saw that charter schools really stepped up to that particular part of, of their, their DNA. They were really quick to adapt. They were really on, focused on making sure that kids and families were supported and that the instructional model got moved quickly to whatever technology level was a possible in their communities. They supported student learning. They supported parent communication. They supported uh, additional efforts to address student needs. 
And we simply did not see that corresponding level of effort um, in, in, in other kinds of schools during the pandemic. So in the district schools, which is of course about 80% of all the schools in the country, uh, you don't see, well, they don't have the same need to because they don't have to attract enrollment and they are getting resources. Uh, you know, they, as long as they maintain their political connections, they're gonna get the resources they need to operate and charter schools uh, they're at they're at risk all the time, so they they have incentives to uh, to constantly improve. Is that what I hear you saying? Yes, I think that that's uh, in a nutshell the the sort of operating pressures that charter schools face. I'd also add that many of the charter schools in Indianapolis, in particular, but also across the country, do have a very uh, cherished mission to go into underserved communities and provide high quality educational opportunities for students. This is, you know, it's, it's almost um, a, a calling, if you will, uh, that, that many operators of charter schools feel deeply, deeply committed to. And so I, I think the combination of the mentality and the operating incentives and the structure of, of authorizing all combined to really push charter schools to a, to a place that you don't typically see in district schools. Well, this is fascinating. Uh, let's move on to Washington, D.C., because Washington, D.C. is a school district that has a very large charter school enrollment. Once again, there's two types of charter schools, ones that get authorized by the district and one that gets, one that gets authorized by another entity. And uh, it's, but about half the kids in Washington, D.C. are going to charter schools. The other half are going to the, the district school in D.C. Uh, so it's a really an important place. It's the nation's capital, of course, and it's also the place where you have as poor a population, uh, especially student population, as you'll find in the United States. So that's beginning to change. It's also the place where Michelle Ree introduced a whole set of reforms into the district schools that have, have definitely had a positive effect on that system. But okay, so where are we in 2019? Your last point when you analyze the data for Washington, D.C., what does this, what do we learn about this? this huge reform effort that took place in the nation's capital over the last 20 years. It's really uh, a, a point in time where you can look back and say, okay, what have been the consequences of all of those actions? Yeah, it would be really cool if we could actually do a time lapse uh, year by year by year from say 2005 forward, because what you would see if we did that is that, uh, there was a great variation in quality in the charter sector that got much more narrow as the authorizers got more serious about doing their job. Uh, and so the charter sector starts to get stronger and starts to pull away from the district. And then the re-era innovations bring a focusing and a narrowing of quality into uh, an improving of quality in the district side uh, to the table. And so the district schools start to catch up with the charter sector. And so what you're seeing for the last four or five years prior to the pandemic is that they're really neck and neck. There's no substantial difference across the two groups of schools. Of course, within, there's a lot of variation. There are really strong district schools 
there are really strong charter schools and schools that are not so strong. But in those two sets of schools, they're, they're literally neck and neck. The place where we see real differences in Washington, D.C. are in the magnet schools. And magnet schools are allowed to be selective in their admissions. And so there is a, uh, a real opportunity for students to identify particular strengths and find schools that work on those strengths or work with those strengths. And so the charter, I'm sorry, the magnet school performance is really substantially higher than you see in either charter schools or district schools. I think that's an important finding uh, because right now around the country, especially in New York City and Boston and other places down the East Coast, but it's, a, it's broader than that, there's an attempt to shut down those magnet schools. Or they're called exam schools no, nowadays. They're no longer given the, the title magnet school, but they, these are schools where you had to show a level of performance in order to be admitted to the school, maybe just in a particular domain, but you had to show some, something that you could bring to the school as a student. And we're now not, uh, we're moving away from that model, and yet you're showing that that is the one thing that's standing out in Washington, D.C. Have I got that right? You are correct. That is exactly what's happening. And the, the pressure to uh, eliminate the entrance requirements for magnet schools, whatever they are, um, isn't predicated on uh, wanting to improve the academic quality of other schools. It's wanting to make sure that there are no, um, no resulting imbalances in the student population of the students who have that particular endowment, uh, which is, uh, it makes an assumption that those endowments, whether it's a, a science focus or whether it's an arts focus, that those endowments are ubiquitous through the entire student population, which there's never been any evidence to support. Uh, and so you've basically, you're killing off the seed corn by eliminating the opportunity to have specialized schools for specialized interests. Uh, meeting students' interests and needs seems to me to be a really important way of engaging kids and making sure that they stay in school and making sure that they get high quality instruction. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be the popular movement right now. Um, it is more interested in making sure that every single student has a seat at an elite school, even if they're not possessing that interest or possessing that endowment. You know, you've also released a report on Baton Rouge and Baton Rouge is interesting because it's not New Orleans, but it's in there in Louisiana. And in Louisiana, you've had a very strong reform movement, which of course has had a major impact on the New Orleans school system. But of course that was impacted by uh, the, the Hurricane Katrina. So we can never quite tell what's the Katrina effect and what's the reform effect. But Baton Rouge is there as the uh, capital again of, uh, of Louisiana and also a place where a lot of efforts were, were made to upgrade its schools. So what do you have mm -hmm. to tell us about Baton Rouge? Well, so I really like Baton Rouge. I'm always uh, rooting for the underdog and you know they are they stand so in the shadow of New Orleans and yet, there is just as much of a civic interest and conviction to improve uh, the, the education landscape in Baton Rouge as there is anywhere else. 
And I have to say, they've, they've actually made some significant progress over the last five years. They have actual better performance than the state as a whole um, in mathematics, and they are at the state average uh, in, in reading. Now, I have to say, Louisiana as an entire state isn't knocking it out of the park if you compare it to other states. It's actually at the bottom of the distribution when we look at these national assessments. But uh, the, the point here is that Baton Rouge came from behind when they started really working on this and they have made gains over the last several years in both the traditional district and in the charter sector. The charter sector is actually slightly uh, uh, slightly better than the district schools, but not by a whole lot. Uh, when you get down to actually looking at where the action is in Baton Rouge, just like Washington, D.C., the action happens in the magnet schools. They're the ones that are producing huge gains per year compared to the state as a whole. So we've looked at three places, but now I'm going to ask mm -hmm. you, what does your all your analyses, you've done a lot of analyses of a lot of cities, what mm -hmm. do you see in general as the storyline? Has the charter experiment proven at least somewhat successful? I would answer that question in two parts. One, the charter sector as a whole, I think, has gotten more resolve about being a quality play as opposed to a quantity play. And so I do think that the, the sector in general is moving in positive directions. My team is, as we speak, uh, underway with another national charter school study, which we hope to have out by the fall. Uh, and so I don't know exactly what the full picture is, but I can say based on the numbers that we've been looking at in these city studies, there does seem to be some, some good evidence that, that we are getting more focused in the charter sector on quality. But I also have to say the district piece um, is very interesting to me because you can see where districts differ in how much appetite they have for strong interventions to produce higher quality and where they don't. And where those districts have taken that commitment in stride and really started to work on it, you're seeing a similar trend. It's obviously a newer trend. It's not as, as concentrated or coherent as we see in the district in the charter side, but you do see districts working hard. And I would give uh, I would give Baton Rouge uh, public schools that kind of credit. I would certainly give Denver that kind of credit. I would give, well, I, I would give those two places uh, a shout out because I think that those are, uh, those are places where you can actually see forward motion and, and a, a, an acceleration of that effort. So you're, you're being uh, somewhat optimistic. Now, is that effort in the district schools being driven in part by the competition from the charter schools? Now, there's a couple of studies out recently that are suggesting that where charter schools are there in a big city school district, the district is responding positively to the challenge. Well, since I don't have any studies that don't have a charter sector pushing on the community, I don't have the counterfactual for that. Uh, I, I think that 
after 25 or 30 years, it ought to be the case that there's competitive pressure, particularly in places where the charter sector is doing a good job, where the charter sector is not doing a good job. There's no there's no there there to compete with. So I don't I wouldn't expect district schools to to do anything other than yawn and just keep doing what they're doing. Well, we've had the pandemic and we saw a lot of closing of schools and the schools that were closed were not only the district schools. A lot of charter schools uh, fell under the same state rules or district rules. So there wasn't a, a lot of a lot of difference between uh, the experiences of students who were in charter schools and in district schools. The variation was more by state around the country than it was between charter and district schools. But yet it, there's some people say that we have a movement during the pandemic to charter schools during the, uh, during the pandemic. Do you have any insights as to whether that was in fact taking place? Well, yeah, actually, we stepped up pretty quickly as uh, governors issued their school closure orders in March of 2020 uh, to try to figure out what was going on in the charter sector. And we recently published a report on three states. Uh, it was California, Washington State, and New York State. So we're talking about over 500 charter schools that we examined. And while they were all forced to close as, as uh, the governors ordered, the average length of time for a charter school to reopen in a remote instructional mode was less than four days. So they didn't stay closed. They actually pivoted much more quickly than, uh, than we saw in the district side of the equation. And, you know, in, in my own state in California, the difference was shocking in, in parts of the state where charter schools, and I should also say private schools, quickly figured out a way to reopen, um, whether it was for remote instruction or quickly moving to in-person instruction. The, the, those schools actually prioritized getting kids back into a learning environment where their district counterparts in some parts of the state never opened at all in the 2021 school year. So that's 15 yeah. months of school that they didn't get. Yeah, and that became a big issue in San Francisco in this uh, recall election. Mm -hmm. There were lots of reasons for the recall, but I think one of them was that school board didn't want to open its schools. Uh, there was a lot of problems with that school board. Uh, and, and this was one, one place where they really, they, they showed how um, challenged they were as a leadership group. Well, so what's the good news? We, what do you see as the best news emerging from your studies? Well, so, I, I, you know, the word contagion has taken on a very bad meaning in the, in the uh, COVID era. But before the pandemic, I was starting to think about the notion of contagion from charter schools to the rest of the education landscape, public school landscape. I was thinking that we were seeing the beginnings of innovation schools where public school district schools were, were starting to behave more like charter schools, where individual schools were being given 
even if they were in the district setting, they were being given different kinds of autonomies and different flexibilities. We are seeing more localized budget controls so that individual schools can figure out how to meet the needs of their students. All of that looks like charterness being uh, moved into the district sector. And the real interest that we have is to see if coming out of the pandemic, now that we know that students are coming back into schools with a wide variety of, of academic needs and a wide range of academic starting points, whether district schools will continue to have that kind of flexibility and be able to adapt the way that we see it happening in the charter sector. Very optimistic that that could happen. I think charter schools are doing it as, as well as they all always have, if not better. Well, thank you, uh, Mackie, for sharing your knowledge and your experience uh, with uh, schools across the country, both district schools and charter schools. And uh, we look forward to the uh, national report that you are hoping to release this, this coming fall. So thank you for joining me today on the Education Exchange. I'm delighted to join you today, Paul. Thanks, and good luck with your other podcasts. I have been speaking with Margaret Raymond, Senior Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. She is the Director of Credo, the Stanford Center for Research on Educational Outcomes at the Hoover Institution, which has recently released a series of reports on student learning in Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.